0: Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, this is an exciting Sunday for us as a church. Uh, You may or may not be aware that we opened eight rooms in our new children's ministry building today. Uh, And it's been a long time coming, and we are very thankful. Uh, that God has, has brought us to this spot. If you're wondering when we're going to open the rest of it, we hope to have everything open on April the 17th. Uh, but we were able to open a portion of it today. And I saw a number of you yesterday. We had probably 50, 60 people, maybe more here yesterday, helping put furniture together and, and clean and move things into new rooms. And it was just a lot of fun to be able to serve together as a body and, and get ready for this event. Now, now, one of the things that, that's interesting about constructing uh, a building like this is that it teaches you a little bit of something. You know, as you, as you are a, aware, we've been at this for quite a while. Um, you know, some of you may be thinking that we've been at this for a couple of years, and you'd be right. And that two years ago, roughly, we began construction. Others of you were around three years ago when we began the Pass It on campaign, sharing this vision for touching the next generation. Uh, for Christ, and, and so maybe you think it's about three years old. Others uh, in church leadership and, and myself, we, remember that we've been talking about this and praying about this and planning for this for about five years now. Um, and, and over a project that has that kind of duration, uh, you 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 find that God teaches you some things as you wait for that day to come. And And one of the lessons that God has taught me is that I don't like to wait. Now I would love for us to have just been able to to just order out of the catalog the church building and then it shows up on a truck and they just back it down and you plug it in and everything works instantly. That would be fantastic. And if you know of a place that does that, let me know afterwards, because if we ever do anything else, that's the way I want to do it. But the reality is that's not the way that this played out. There was vision to share, there were finances to raise, there were plans to draw, there were contractors to hire, there were things to construct, and it takes a significant amount of time and coordination to do something like that. Um, but, but one of the things, in all seriousness, I've found over the last few years is that I really don't like to wait. And and I suspect that you don't like to wait either. Do you like to wait? Now think about that. Do you, do you like to wait for insignificant things like planes, trains, and automobiles? You like to wait for your plane to take off at the airport? No, we get restless. That's why they sell, you know, coffee and, they, and books and magazines and and there's TVs up. They want to distract us because it's annoying to wait. We don't like to wait for planes. We don't like to wait for trains. Anybody driving down Robinson Street can attest to that. We don't like to wait. We can't wait till that underpass gets through because we don't like to wait on trains. We don't like to wait on automobiles. A drive that's supposed to take 30 minutes takes 45, and you think the world just ended. We don't like to wait for insignificant things. We also don't like to wait for significant things. That really gets to us, doesn't it? Waiting for the next job. You're ready to do something else. You're, you're looking. The resumes are out. The phone calls are coming back in, and it just seems to take forever. We don't like waiting for relationships to heal or for relationships to start. We don't like waiting for children to come. You know, we, we, we're Ready to start the family, we flip the baby switch and nothing happens. We don't like that. We don't like waiting for school to be over. And you're in year two of your college experience and you're like, I don't need the rest of this, or your graduate school experience, I don't need the rest of this. And, and, and you have to watch Empire Strikes Back to find out just how bad it is to leave training early just to stay plugged in for, for those last couple of years. We don't like to wait. We're people that don't like to wait. And so how do we glorify God while we wait? How do we glorify God as we wait for the things that we hope for in life? How do we glorify God as we wait for the things, sometimes even that He's promised us in life? We're going to look this morning at that very topic, and we're going to look at it from the life of King David as we start a new uh, three-part series called The Lord of the King." What we're going to see in this series is a trilogy of messages that are going to really help us to understand more about the Lord by looking at King David and the period of time in his life from the time God says you're going to be king to the time he actually ascends to the throne. I think there's some things that we can learn both about waiting as well as about other issues, but this morning we're going to look specifically at the issue of how did David wait well? And we're going to see it by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 2 Samuel chapter 5. I promise to not read all of that. Uh, that's a number of verses. I'd encourage you to, if, this week to, to take the opportunity to, to read it, take you a few minutes. It's an it's a incredible journey uh, of David. But I'm going to point out a few things in selected verses from 1 Samuel chapter 16 through 2 Samuel chapter 5 as we, we look at the issue of waiting. And we're going to see two things as we look at this passage today. Uh, The first thing that we're going to see is this. The path to promise does not always look promising. The path to promise does not always look promising. And we're going to see that as we see the events unfold of David headed towards the throne. See, we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16. Now, in 1 Samuel 16 the nation of Israel is led by a man named Saul. King Saul led Israel. Uh, And and Saul had lived a life of disobedience and lack of trust in God. He He had so angered the Lord that God said, Saul, I'm done with you as king over my people. I'm going to search the nation of Israel, and I'm going to find someone who has a heart like mine, and I will make him the next king. And so God begins searching around Israel for the next king. And, and as God does that, he whispers into the ear of Samuel, the prophet, and he says, Samuel, I'm going to pick a new king, and I want you to go find him and anoint him for me. And this new king, Samuel, the Lord says, will be one of the sons of Jesse who lives in this little town called Bethlehem. Maybe some of you have heard of it. He says, go to this little town of Bethlehem, And there you'll find one of the sons of Jesse who will be the next king over Israel. So Samuel loads up and he goes to Bethlehem and he meets with Jesse's family. And Jesse parades out all of his sons. And as he shows these sons to Samuel, Samuel says, nope, 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 nope. Not because Samuel thought they didn't look good. Because God kept whispering into Samuel's ear saying, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. And, and Jesse, the father of these boys, gets through seven of his sons and he says, that's it. You rejected all of them. And Samuel says, well, are you sure? And Jesse goes, oh yeah, I do have that other son who's working out in the field. And, and you know, when I, when I hear that story, it really cracks me up because I have an, an uncle, an aunt that have... Six children, and this family of six children went on vacation a number of years ago and when, when the kids were were little, and they stopped at a truck stop to get uh, you know fill up the car with gas, go to the bathroom, get some snacks, or whatever. They all pile back into the car minus Kenny, who is still inside the store, and they take off and as they take off kenny 's drinking a bottle of pop on the Edge of the sidewalk of the truck stop with all five other children waving at Kenny. And and my uncle and aunt are driving away. They go you know several miles down the road before they do a head count and realize that Kenny is missing. And they turn around, they come back and, and they get him at that time. And I think you know, my my uncle and aunt in that experience had a similar deal to Jesse. They just forgot they had another one, right? And Jesse forgot that he had David. And the reason why he didn't really forget that he had a son, he just didn't think that. David was of any consequence to come before the prophet. But surely, he's not talking about David. One of these other young strapping lads. But God kept saying no, and so eventually, in verse 12 of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, it says this, And so Jesse sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, to Samuel, arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Rama. What you see there is that David, who's about thirteen years old, best we can figure chronologically at this point in time, is about thirteen years old, and he gets anointed to be the next king over Israel. Samuel says, it's going to be you. Now, we might read that today and think that really what this is is like somebody being voted most likely to succeed in their high school yearbook. You know, stay sweet, don't ever change, most likely to succeed. This is what has been given to David here. But it actually was much more significant than that, much more significant, because Samuel was a prophet of God, Samuel was one who, when he spoke, he spoke forth the words of God, and God had very strict rules about those who were his prophets. They weren't just to merely spout off their own opinions about such matters. When they spoke, they spoke the word of God, and if they were wrong, there were serious consequences. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 22, and then back in verse 20, we see the criteria set out by which a prophet of God was judged. In, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, it says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. In other words, if he says something and it doesn't come true, then he's not really a prophet. Back in verse 20, it lets us know what the consequences of that are. It says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die. There was capital punishment waiting for the prophet of God that did not speak truth in matters such as these. So when Samuel comes to David and says, you're going to be king, David had far more than some words of encouragement or career advice. He was given a proclamation from God saying, this will come to pass. He was 13 when that word comes. So, we might imagine that when that word comes to the thirteen-year-old David, then immediately David became king. Then immediately David enrolled in King College and graduated four years later with his king degree and he ascended to the throne of Israel in short order. But the reality is it took a lot longer than that for David to become king. Uh, Look over in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 4, the promise of God definitely ultimately comes true, but it takes a significant amount of time. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4 says this, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. Think about that. He was 30 when he placed the crown upon his head. He was 13 when the promise came. Now, I'm not very good at math, but I'm pretty sure that's 17 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to live with a promise that wasn't yet fulfilled. Now, what happened during that 17 years? Well, some of the things that happened during that 17 years were things that were pretty promising, looking towards the promise of God being fulfilled. There were things that happened to David over those 17 years that really looked like uh, the the path that we would expect someone who was going to become king. One of the things that happens is in 1 Samuel 16 verses 15 through 23, we won't read that right now, but David enters, a, his first job outside the home is a job inside the king's court. See, Saul had this oppressive spirit that was really weighing down on him and he said, find me somebody who plays the harp who can come in here and soothe me when when this these headaches come and this oppressive spirit comes and So his guys look around, they say, there's this great kid over in Bethlehem that can really play the harp. Why don't you bring him in and let him play for you when you're not feeling well? And Saul says, go get him and hire him. And suddenly David, the shepherd, has a job in the king's court. Now that would look pretty promising, right? For someone who was to be king, that he would move from the field to the throne room one of the, some of the things that happened to David were quite promising during that 17 years. Another thing that happened during that time is that David became famous. David had a had a little skirmish with a tall man named Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And after David killed Goliath, the mighty warrior of the Philistines, David became a famous person in all of Israel. His picture was on t-shirts and on the side of of coffee mugs and he he was making the rounds on the television talk shows. People loved David after he killed Goliath. And so that when the the nation of Israel comes back from battle, the people come out to meet them and to celebrate. And it says in chapter 18, verse 6 and 7, it says, as they, meaning the armies of Israel, were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands. Saul loved that verse. And David, his ten thousands. Saul didn't like that one as much, but what it does show is that David had become famous overnight. And again, that's a promising step towards someone that was going to be king over the nation. He has a job in the throne room. He's now a household name throughout Israel. These are promising steps towards David ascending to the throne. He also becomes a commander of the armies of Israel. After this time, after he slays Goliath, Saul sees his ability in battle, and he says in chapter 18 and verse 5 David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war." David became a commander of the armies, and and kings in that day were people who commanded the armies. So military experience, specifically commanding troops in battle, was something we would expect to see on the resume of a future king. There were several things that happened to David that were quite promising towards the promise of God. However, however, there were also things that happened to David that didn't look so promising in this 17-year period of time. There were some things that happened that that were pretty ugly, that were pretty difficult to David. One of those things that happened was that David began to run for his life because King Saul, jealous from the acclaim that David was getting, wanted to kill him. We see a representation of one of David's encounters with Saul when he wanted to kill him. And chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, when it says, Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul wanted to kill him. He was throwing spears at him for sport. And so David is now running for his life. That's not something you would expect, necessarily, looking promising on the resume of a future king. He goes on. Because David had to flee from Saul's presence, he began to leave behind things that were very near and dear to him. He had to leave behind his wife, Michael, his best friend, Jonathan, his job as leader of the armies of Saul. He had to leave all of those things behind in his uh, efforts to flee and to save his life. Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 19 mentions this. It says, So Michael, his wife, let David down through the window, and he fled away, and he escaped. He's running for his life, not something that would look that promising on the path of one who would be king. And and he's so fleeing for his life, and things are spinning out of control so badly for David that he eventually ends up kind of at the end of his rope. And we, we see that, and and uh, over in chapter 21, again, this is a, a verse that we're not going to read, but in, in chapter 21, verses 10 to 15, David is so distressed from the, the fight that is going on inside the, the nation of Israel and Saul trying to take his life that David tries to find asylum. He tries to find protection anywhere that he can. And he even ends up going to this town called Gath to meet with King Achish there and to ask him to protect him. And what a crazy thing that is when you look at the scope of what happens in the book of 1 Samuel, because who else was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. David was at the end of his rope. He was so low, he was looking to find protection from the people that he had just annihilated. This would be like the people of Norman trying to find refuge in Austin or Stillwater. It just doesn't make sense. And yet, there it is. David is at the end of his rope. He knows nowhere else to turn, so he turns to the people of Gath, and and things go so poorly in that meeting that David figures the only way he can save his life is to start blubbering like a madman and salivating down his beard and scratching weird things on the wall, and the king says, you're crazy, get out of here. That's the way he saves his life. David's life was spiraling downward. And yet, Seventeen years later, he would become king. You see, the path to promise, sometimes it looks promising, but sometimes it doesn't look all that promising. And, and I was thinking about this and thinking about these verses this week as I was thinking, how do we, how do we apply those things? How do we apply those thoughts uh, for us today as we read them and, and ponder them? What do we do with those, that story? Well, one of the things I think that happens is that that as we think about David waiting for a promise yet fulfilled, I think that we can relate a little bit to his emotion, can't we? Can you, you know, relate a little bit to the emotion of someone who is waiting for something that hasn't yet come yet but that is significant and important in their life? You know, the feelings that you have as you wait for the next job or the next paycheck or the next commission, the feelings that you have as you wait for the next child or the first child or whatever, Uh, the feelings that you have as you wait for your children to launch, the the feelings that you have as you wait to graduate, the feelings that you have as you wait to find your your spouse, the feelings that you have as you wait for the relationship to heal. You see, there are things that we care about, and there are things that we're waiting for, and we can relate to the emotion that David had as he waited for something that hadn't yet come, we can connect with him there. Now, it's important for us also to note, though, that there are some differences to many of the things that we wait for in some of the things, uh, with the situation that was going on here with David. See, David wasn't waiting for something that he hoped for. David was waiting on something that he had truly been promised the prophet of God said, you will be the next king, and the prophet had heard directly from God himself. This was a promise. This was going to happen. This is akin to us waiting for our forgiveness, waiting for our eternal glory, waiting for you know, something like that. You know, a lot of the things that I mentioned earlier that we connect to the emotion on, those are things that we hope for. We might wait our entire life. They might not ever come, but at least we can relate to the emotion that David would have felt as we wait for these things. We spend a lot of our time in life waiting for the next big thing. We can relate on the emotion. But a second thing I think we can do as we seek to apply this, as we begin to relate to David on an emotional level in this passage, is that we we can come to realize that God is not a God who is really all that efficient. Our God is not an efficient God. Now, when I I say that, I don't mean that, that God is wasteful, but what I mean is that God doesn't operate in, an, in by our standard of definition of efficiency. If God were really efficient, we would think, David, you're going to be king and tomorrow ta-da, you're king. That's what we think, right? And the fact that it takes 17 years, it seems like there's a lot of wasted motion, it seems like there's a lot of extraneous activities, it seems like God is is killing time or wasting time in some way. But the reality is God is not all that efficient because God's greatest joy for us is not to, and greatest plan for us is not necessarily to get us where we're going at light speed. I'll give you an example that maybe will help drive this home a little bit for us. About 11 years ago, my sister uh, got married in Little Rock. We were living in Dallas at the time, and we were going to drive out to Little Rock for, for the events around the wedding. We get ready to go, and and instead of just making the straight shot up I-30, it would have been about a a five-and-a-half-hour drive, we decided to take a little bit of a road trip. I had recently been camping in southeastern Oklahoma down around the Watchtower Mountains, and it was going to be October, and I thought it would be beautiful for us to take not the straight shot, but us to take the scenic route up through southeast Oklahoma over Tallahina Drive into Mena, Arkansas, and then on to Hot Springs, and then into Little Rock. Now, by virtue of making that decision and taking that path, we added time to our trip and we added money to our trip. It cost, instead of $20 in gas, it cost $40 in gas. Remember, this is 11 years ago dollars. Uh, In inflation, if we were to make the same trip today, it would cost $8,000 to make that drive. (laughs) But at the time, it wasn't that bad. But it was. It was an added cost. It was an added cost make the trip. It was an added time. If if our objective was just to get there, then we were quite inefficient in our travels. But because we took the route that we did, we got to see things we would not have seen otherwise. And I'm fully convinced that the, the reason why God doesn't just take us from A to B at light speed is because He wants to take us on a path that shows us things about Himself and things about ourselves that we would not see otherwise. David had an opportunity to learn about the faithfulness of God. He had an opportunity to learn about humility and the kind of servant leadership it would take to lead Israel the way God wanted him to. David had the opportunity to write the Psalms that he wrote during this 17-year period of time. God was taking David where he was taking him because he wanted to show him things about himself and he wanted to show him things about David that he would not have seen otherwise. And the reality is, the the routes that God takes us down, the road trip that we're on in our life, is so that we can see things about God and so that we can understand things about ourselves that we wouldn't know otherwise. It may not be efficient, but it's perfect according to God's plans for our lives. Think about what you're waiting for right now. Know that God is taking you down a path to show you something about who He is. One of the things we need to see is that this path does not always look promising. But a second thing I think we need to understand about this is that we need to persist along the path in faithful humility. what what, What does God want us to do in light of the fact that he wants to show us things, I think God wants us to persist, to keep going, to live day by day in faithful humility upon him as we wait for these things in our lives. He wants us to live a life of faith. And he wants us to live that life of faith every day. Uh, David did that. David spent his life not resting on his laurels of this proclamation of king but continuing to trust God day by day by day by day, continuing to do the things that he was asked to do day by day by day by day. He did not just take the proclamation and go by the kingly robes and enroll in the kingly college and stop doing the things that he had done previously and demand that his brothers take care of him and demand that his father take care of him And all those kinds of things. David didn't do that. David was faithful day by day with the things that God had for him. And we we see that over and over again in what David does. Uh, It's interesting. David gets the word from Samuel that he's to be king. The next thing we hear about David is in chapter 16, verse 19 of 1 Samuel. It says, When Saul decided to go call for David to come and to play the lyre in his court, David is someplace very familiar. It says, therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. He's still doing what his dad asked him to do. He's still taking care of the family sheep. He didn't let it go to his head. He just was faithful to the things that God had for him that day. Chapter 17, verse 20, now he's got a job working in the king's court, playing the harp, but he's taken advantage of his free time to go back home and take care of his father's sheep even while his brothers are doing important things like fighting the Philistines and Goliath. We see this in chapter 17, verse 20. It says, David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with a keeper and he took the provisions and he went as Jesse, his father, had commanded him and he took the provisions to the front line where his brothers were, were fighting. See, David didn't let it go to his head. He was just faithful doing what his dad was asking him to do. He was faithful to take care of his sheep in the day. Uh, it's interesting, even after he kills Goliath, you know, what, what are his big plans? You know, I was joking earlier, he was, you know, on t-shirts and mugs and hitting the talk shows. He really wasn't doing that. You know where David was headed? Not to, not to the Tonight Show, not to the White House. David was headed back to take care of his father's sheep. Look at what it says in, in chapter 18, verse 2. It says, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. David wanted to go back home and take care of the sheep. Saul says, no, no, we got other plans. And once Saul takes him in and says, now you're working for me full time, what does David do? The one who had been promised to be king? Chapter 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. What did David do? He did everything Saul asked him to do. That is faithful humility. The next king submitting to the current king and saying, whatever you want me to do, I'll go and I'll do it to the best of my abilities." What does it look like to live a life of faith as you wait for the next big thing? It looks like being faithful with where you're at today. And that's tough to do, isn't it? It's tough. If you, if you have mentally let the ship sail, I'm going to go. I'm going to take another job. I'm going I'm to go and do something else vocationally. When, you, when that ship begins to sail, how difficult is it to focus on your job at hand? It's tough, isn't it? Yet David was faithful with the job he had, even knowing that he wouldn't do that forever. How, what does it look like to be faithful when you're, you're, you're single, hoping that God might provide a spouse for you in the future. Well, one of the things is that you're faithful to follow Him when you're single. You're trusting Him where you are. You're tending the sheep of your life today, even though God may or may not have something else for you tomorrow. What does it look like when you're a student in school? It means you're working hard and diligently, doing everything you can in that time in school, While you have that opportunity. You're faithful with that opportunity, even though you're not going to be in school forever. It means that you're faithful to walk with God and to do the things that he's asking you to do when you have no children, rather than just waiting to start your life when you have them or when you have another one. See, what it looks like to live by faith is that we are faithful where we are. You know, this is the same thing, same principle applies in ministry. And you may be here today, and and I I believe this, there there are people that God has brought to Wildwood and blessed us with that are here today, that God has has, has equipped you for ministry, and you might be like, I am serving right now in 25% of the capacity of what I believe God wants me to do in ministry. There are things I want to do. There are dreams I want to be a part of. But I'm going to wait until I'm speaking to 5,000 before I engage in ministry because that's the ministry that I have for me. You know what the reality is? God wants us to be faithful with wherever we are. Because God is interested in our faithfulness, there is no difference in significance, not one bit of significant difference between somebody rocking a baby downstairs right now and me standing on the stage. Not one difference. We're just being faithful to where God has us. What does it look like to wait well? It means trusting God where you're at every day. The things that God has promised, we can take it to the bank. They're going to come true. The things that we hope for may or may not come true, but God certainly will come through for us. To comfort us, to be with us, to guide us, no matter what the, the story See, the reality is we all are going to be waiting. We're waiting in life for something. How do we wait? Well, David's life gives us some insight as we look at the Lord of the King. We're going to conclude our service today by, by singing a, a song. It's a, it's a new song. It's a new song to us. You may be, may be very familiar to you. It's a song called You'll Come, and, and there's a lyric in this song that is just is great. It says, I have decided... I have resolved to wait upon you, Lord. My rock and redeemer, shield and reward, I will wait upon you, Lord. When we sing that in a minute, I want you to think about, what are the things that you're waiting for right now? And and as you think about that, I want you to to have that in mind as you sing to the Lord, saying that I'm going to trust you now, every day. Just as the song said, let, let me pray for us, Father. Thank you for today. Thank you that you love us and you care for us and you're patient with us. Um, thank you that you don't just just zap us forward, but you long to take us on that scenic drive so that we can understand more of who you are and who we are. Because ultimately, your desire is that we live in relationship with you, Father. Thank you for that. And and I I just pray that this morning, that as as we sing this closing song, that Really, this would be the desire of our heart and the practice of our lives that we would live by faith every day, humbly, waiting on you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name.